being a Christian uh, does affect your money. Or it should do. It should have an influence on how money is earned, how money is spent, and how money is saved. It's good to think about how our Christian faith and outlook, if we have one, affects our money. What goes in and out of your bank account? Perhaps it's a bit easier now. You've got it on the app. You have a sense of what's going in and out. How does your Christian faith affect those different items? Your standing orders, if you've got them, that go regularly out of your bank account each money, each month. Uh, the way your credit card's spent, either with a below £45 swipe or bigger items. The cash, it's a bit of a rarity, these days, cash, but the way your cash, money, pound notes, coins go, affected by your Christian faith. It will be especially so in the area of giving. I wonder if you've seriously thought about the whole area of giving. Sometimes people go into, uh, call themselves Christians, they are Christians, but they don't think seriously about giving as part of their lives. We may give as non-Christians. Some non-Christians are are very kind, but surely when we become followers, uh, giving goes up to a new level. It has a new motivation, it has a new atmosphere to it. We're thinking this evening about giving money. Um, We can also think of giving and using our possessions, our time, the things we own. As we think about money and giving money, however, it's very important to register that it affects our money because it affects our heart. It affects our hearts. We're not compelled to give. It's as our hearts are moved to give. And that will become very clear in the chapters we're looking at these next couple of weeks. Christian faith affects money, but affects it through our hearts. Our next two chapters in 2 Corinthians are on the theme of giving. It is the largest, if you like, single block of teaching in the whole Bible on the theme of giving. And that's where we've come to in our studies in 2 Corinthians. There is a particular situation that's being tackled, but God has left this in his word. And it contains in these two chapters many lessons that will help us as we think through pound notes and our lives heart, pound notes, and our lives. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 8 this week, and God willing, 2 Corinthians 9 next Sunday evening. Um, The build-up today is slightly different. For those who are in home groups, and I'd love a good number to be in home groups, do do ask to be in one if you're not already, Uh, but the home group on Thursday will be largely on 2 Corinthians 9, which is next Sunday evening's passage. So we're doing that slightly differently, studying it together before you hear it uh, preached from. I think that probably might change how you hear it 
preached actually. I hope it means that you'll find it more helpful, engaging. It may be that I get a lot more comments afterwards by people who've got different thoughts because they studied it. Well, perhaps that will be healthy. Do you ever find yourself um, agreeing to give and not following through? So you say to somebody, yeah, I'll sponsor you, uh, put me down, I'll sponsor you for £5, 50p or whatever it is, um, I'll give it to you uh, next weekend. And then the weeks go by and uh, the person has to rather embarrassingly come to you, nudge you, chase you, because you haven't followed through what you said you'd do. Well, that's happened in a, a much bigger way here at Corinth. So Paul was making a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a long way away, hundreds of miles away, but they were experiencing particular sort of poverty, perhaps as a result of famine. And uh, he was keen for the churches around Europe to to show their care and love for the Jerusalem Christians and to organise a collection. It features quite a few times in Paul's letters, perhaps more times than you might expect. It was an important aspect for Paul, both because of his concern for the Jerusalem Christians and his brotherly love for them, but also because it was actually a cementing act of Christian unity between the Gentiles and the Jews that this money should be given. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 gives you a bit of background if you want to read up there to see what I say. But... um, the church at Corinth, or despite offering and saying they were going to join in this collection, don't seem to have moved on much, despite the months going past. So this is what is in mind in these chapters. So you just see that, if I can take you to some of the verses. 8 verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verses 11 and 12. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness, I'll sponsor you, in desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Uh, Chapter 9, if we can just dip into that tonight. Verse 1. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. And then verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised. So that's that's the background. He wants them to finish off this collection for the Jerusalem saints in their need. It's almost as as well it's evidence of them being back on board with the gospel. They're committed to the Gospel, to the other churches, to the Apostles' ministry, by demonstrating their love for the other believers in the area of Jerusalem. Well, this week's chapter contains a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons about uh, giving. We're just going to look at it in three ways, which I hope will give us enough to think about our own giving and also anchor it into the situation there so that you can make sense of what was happening. So firstly, he urges overflowing generosity like the northerners. Overflowing generosity like the northerners. 
he starts drawing attention to the Christians in Macedonia. Now that's northern Greece. And you, you've probably heard of some of the churches there. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Corinth was uh, in Achaia, that was southern Greece, Macedonia north, Achaia in the south. And he wants them to look up to the people who were in the north and their attitude. Because it was a very impressive attitude that they had had towards this giving and this collection. Let's read about it in the first five verses of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now we're immediately struck in the chapter by a word that's going to help us to negotiate this giving business. In the first verse he says, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. Grace of God. In verse 6 you get this act of grace. In verse 7 you get this act of grace. In verse 19 you get this act of grace. That's how it's seen. Giving is an act of grace. It is giving that is stirred by God's grace. God is a giving God. And God has given to us. God is a gracious God. He gives us what we don't deserve. And as we give to others, really we're just passing on what we have received. We're recognising God's kindness to us and we're showing it to others. We've just been an outlet for his grace. His grace is going through us. Our giving should be grace-flavoured. You get different flavours of ice cream. Don't you? If you go down to the beach in some resorts, you get about 30 choices of a job to go through and pick which one you want. Well, giving comes in different flavours. I'm not going to give you 30, but let's just give you three or four. Uh, giving can be guilt-flavoured. Giving can be pride-flavoured or flaunting-flavoured. Giving can be duty-flavoured. Giving can be minimal flavoured. But Christian giving should be grace flavoured. It should be grace flavoured. Aware of God's grace to us and wanting that to be passed on to others. This will come up at different points these next two weeks. Paul is not whipping people against their wills to give He's encouraging them instead really to open up the valves to allow the grace of God which they have received to flow through them as a blessing to others. And verse 2 shows how striking this was for the Macedonians. Notice the extreme language. 
in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This was how the Macedonians, the people from the north, were approaching it. There was severe trouble, there was extreme poverty, and yet there was abundance of joy, and there was an overflowing, a wealth of generosity. Hardship shouldn't stop us from being generous. It may affect its shape, it may affect its amount, but it's possible to still be joyful, generous givers, even in hardship. As somebody was reminding me this, this week of when they went to Romania in, it was for us the early days of involvement with Romania, when Romanians were very poor, and the way in which they, um, they had people come to stay and, and pass on things and uh, their hospitality would just be so impressive that they had so little themselves and that would give such a lovely meal to those who had come to bring things to them such that the rest of the week they'd had hardly anything to eat as a family despite their poverty, so generous. It it reminded me of when we went across to Ukraine and and Romania back in 93, I think it was, uh, taking some packages and some medicines over because of the situation there at the time. And one of the houses in the Ukraine, they were so insistent we take something back that we got given a choice. We had a deer with antlers, a deer's head with antlers, or we had a a beautifully carved, hand-carved mirror. Well, the antlers wouldn't fit very well all the way back to the UK, so if you go into our hall, you can still see a beautifully hand-carved mirror. Out of their hardship and poverty, they were so generous. So don't leave it for those with fat salaries and big inheritances. Yes, you have to give according to your means, but do give maybe a small proportion of pocket money maybe a little bit of the money from that supermarket job, maybe a little bit of the pension or the benefits amount, you can be hard up and yet be generous. A lesson from the northerners. In fact, their poverty meant that I think Paul didn't really feel he could ask them to join in the charitable project. But you see what their reaction was in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favour, the grace, the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. We usually think, don't we, of people begging to receive. But these Macedonians were begging to give. (laughs) Begging to give. Good example, aren't they? And their approach was uh, what we might call godly giving. Giving very much with God in mind. Um, It wasn't just sort of guilt avoiding. Um, It wasn't just, you know, let's get the Apostle Paul off our back. You know, let's let's make a contribution and then, you know, let's put something in the bag and just move the bag on and everything will be smooth and fine. No, they were 
wholehearted and it was an outflow of their commitment to God. You see that in verse 5. I've gone fairly slowly through these verses. We'll have to speed up, but there's just so much in these first few. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected. So Paul says, the Macedonians, the northern Greeks, they didn't do it quite as we thought they would, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It's as if they put themselves on the offering plate. It was an expression of their wholehearted love and worship of God. Godly giving. So, overflowing of God's grace, even in hardship, out of a a God-centred life and commitment. Paul says, be like the northerners, verse 6. Accordingly, because of what I've just told you about the Macedonians, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. And then he says something which will um, stir them and challenge them. It is positive, but it's got a little edge on it. The the Corinthians thought they were rather exceptional. They thought they were rather, and you get this from the, the 1 Corinthians 13 passage on love, you sense it at the start, they thought they were rather exceptional in their faith and in their knowledge and in their ability to speak. Maybe you're well read in Christian books. Uh, maybe you've got a strong faith and it, it shows in an eloquent prayer. Maybe people hang on your every word when you give a talk. Well, Paul says to these Corinthians, see that you're exceptional in giving as well, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in awareness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Well, I expect we too need to learn from the northerners, from those great saints in Macedonia. For us to see giving as an outflow of God's grace. You know that song uh, based on a prayer, isn't it? Make me a channel of your peace. It's quite a nice song, quite a nice prayer. But it's also we call it, make me a channel of your grace. May your giving that comes to me be shown to others. For us, giving, even though times are hard, for us, committing ourselves to God and for the giving to come out of that as a result. So, overflowing generosity like the northerners. Then he urges, sacrificial generosity like the Lord Jesus sacrificial generosity like the Lord Jesus. We have an even better example as the chapter continues. A better example than the Macedonians. And an example which should melt the heart of us sadly hard-hearted, selfish Christians. Verse 9 was well worth a double read. So, thank you John for that. In verse 9... Paul talks of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Verse 9 is a great Christmas verse. Verse 9 sums up so much of the gospel. 
Verse 9 is packed with theology. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It teaches the pre-existence of the Son in glory. It teaches the incarnation, as we call it, as the Son comes to earth. It teaches the riches that come to us through Christ. But it's primarily here to stir giving. To stir giving. That's why it's in this chapter. And when we have, sadly, we, we tend to want to hold on to it, don't we? We, we want to utilise it for ourselves. We get some money, we want to think, well, what, what can I spend it on? I've got this much now in the bank, what can I buy? I've got this windfall of a bonus or a rise or maybe an inheritance and you think, well, what, what can I spend it on for me? I've got all these sweets, I'm going to keep them for myself. We, we just find it so easy, don't we, to be looking to hold on to things. Well, we've got good gifts, we enjoy them from God, that's right, but here see the way the Lord Jesus unselfishly gave up. It says he was rich. He was rich. He was rich in glory. He was rich in enjoyment. He was rich in fellowship, Father, Son and Spirit. He was rich in honour amongst the angels. He was rich in comfort, but he became poor, Poor in coming down to earth. Poor in treading on this suffering, uh, fallen, a sin-cursed planet. Poor in serving others. Poor in experiencing rejection. Poor in going to the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you by his poverty, might become rich. And others, us if we're believers, we experience welcome, we experience forgiveness, we experience adoption, we experience salvation and reconciliation and redemption and salvation from wrath and glory ahead, all because of the way in which Jesus himself was willing to give up things of richness and experience poverty. And there's a pattern there. And it's a pattern for the Corinthians. You Corinthians, you're rich. You can become poorer so that the struggling Jerusalem saints can be richer. Well, how does that work out in our lives? That's quite a question, isn't it? We can never match what Jesus has done. But it should produce in us a a desire, a tendency, a delight in looking to give and in looking to give sacrificially, I guess that's quite a challenge for all of us because we do want to hold on, don't we? We may convert it, sadly, we still sort of want to maximise personal utility and experience and satisfaction. But conscious of Jesus, we may be want to help according to a a needy situation which comes to our mind, whether it be more organised or an individual one-off that we're just aware of. 
uh, we want to share our home and our food with, uh, in hospitality with others. Let it go a bit for the benefit of others. Uh, we want to give towards the ongoing needs of a local church. It's our money, but we release some of it for the blessing of others through the ministry of the local church. We support uh, missionaries and gospel workers elsewhere. We have some less so that they can be sustained and that others can be blessed through them. Maybe we, we buy some vouchers for a situation or, 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 or we give a donation to people in need and we're looking to give there are ways in which you've been pleased to give recently. Other ways in which you could resume giving after a rather strange 18 months. Are there ways you could start to give? What, what we have is given so that others can be Enriched Christians should be generous because Jesus was. Christians should be sacrificially generous because Jesus was. Are you generous? Even harder question, I think the second one, are you sacrificially generous? That's a hard one, isn't it? Well, that's what he's urging them on the basis of what Christ has done for them, that they might be like-minded really sacrificial generosity like the Lord Jesus. But there are some other principles that come towards the end of the chapter and we can group those under this. He's urging them towards responsible generosity through Titus, etc. Responsible generosity. Now you might say, well, isn't it possible to get all a bit reckless in this giving? I've heard of uh, big-hearted Christians uh, wallowing in debt uh, because they just can't resist giving away what they've had. Uh, You might say, isn't it possible to pour money down the drain with bad causes that don't really help? Haven't some charities in the past been found to be misusing money? Uh, And do we really want a sacrificial uh, it's one thing to give sacrificially, another thing to, to pour it down the drain, isn't it? Responsible generosity we're coming on to. We'll come to a bit about Titus in, 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 in a minute. But first of all, in verses 12 to 15, we have um, some more teaching there on responsible giving. The Bible doesn't expect us to give beyond our Means. Well, the Macedonians nearly did, but um, you'll, you'll see from these verses, the Bible doesn't expect us to give beyond our means. It doesn't expect us to give so that we get impoverished just so that others can live it up. No, um, in a way, to use a sort of topical buzzword, um, God has a, a levelling level, up agenda amongst believers a levelling up agenda. And he, he points to the manna situation in the desert where they were collecting the manna and the way in which that worked. Let's read about these things in 12 to 15. Responsible generosity. For if the readiness is there, 
It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It was an evenness, there was a sharing. So, do, do give and be generous in ways that you can, in ways that, that have a pinch, that cost, but don't end up in a fix yourself. Some people are so thoughtless with their finances um, that they then make themselves dependent on others. I knew of a lady once who was very big-hearted, always keen to give, but constantly needed bailing out herself. Well, that's not the way in which we should approach our finances. It's clear from these verses. Well, then we move on to the mention of Titus and others. So, Titus is coming to Corinth with this, with this letter and he's going to be part of the collection of this money for the uh, believers in Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, there are actually three people that are mentioned. Team. There's a famous brother, uh, so famous we don't actually know who he is because he's not named. He didn't need to be named by um, Paul, but, uh, so we don't actually know his name. But he was well known by uh, the churches and he was actually appointed, selected, carefully chosen by the churches for this collection job. We read about him in verses 18 and 19. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. And there is another Christian part of the team. We read about him in verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. And then there is Titus himself, and he's described a bit more at the start of verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And so as a three, we have them summed up in the second half of verse 23. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Now don't you think this was very, all very reassuring to the Corinthians and to the other churches involved? I, I sense this is being dealt with well, responsibly, with integrity. The giving will be well stewarded. They've got good people on the job with respect and reputation, trustworthy people. These people weren't going to have their hand in the bag themselves. They weren't going to misspend the money at Jerusalem when they got there. There was more than one of them as a safety in finance to have plurality. 
And so when, when we're handling the giving of others, if we're ever in that position, well, we're in a position of, of responsibility that requires a lot of integrity. And we're seeing for the training course at LTS, Dave, David Cook, some of us may know of David Cook, he's been a friend of the church in different ways, does, does a seminar for the ministry training on financial integrity. I remember going to the World in Need conference here that was being run for people internationally and, and one of the seminars was financial integrity. Very important that if we're handling the money of others that there should be trustworthiness and integrity. And when we're giving, it's right that we look for trusted means and trusted avenues to pass on our giving. Organisations that we can trust individuals that we know and trust. It protects from unfair blame. Verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. And then in verse 21, in a way I think you get to a slightly shocking verse. Well, it shocked me partly as I read it this week, something I hadn't thought about before. Uh, We often say... All that matters is what the Lord sees. We're living for him, not our reputation and the approval of others. And this is a a good point and it often needs emphasising, it probably will be emphasising in some ways. That's very much how we need to see things. Just, you know, it's the Lord's view that really matters. So, does it then seem strange to read verse 21. For we aim at what is honourable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Hmm. We are about pleasing God, ultimately, most fully. And we don't allow the thoughts of men to detract from that. But in different aspects of life and handling money particularly, we want to demonstrate integrity and responsibility before others. We want onlookers to say, yeah, this is a good job. This is being handled well. I can trust this. This is good. This is a responsible avenue for me to give. Sometimes it might seem a bit bureaucratic and over the top. We have accounts presented and voted on. There are audits and there are procedures. But this is, this is what it's driving at, isn't it? And maybe sometimes you're involved with the nitty gritty and the humdrum of working all these figures through and making sure it's all sorted out. Well, this is what's behind it. Integrity. Trustworthiness. Handling finance as well. And if I can lift it even higher, just at the end here, because the passage does, let me tell you this, the glory of Christ is involved. The glory of Christ is involved. Verse 19. We carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. And verse 23 second half, and as for our brothers they are messengers of the churches the glory of Christ this is what it's about 
with our giving and how it's handled. Yeah, we think about our bank balances. We should start to think about our credit cards, swipes and what that's on. We think about our standing orders. We think about the cash that goes in collections and other directions. But really what it's about is the glory of Christ. His honour. Bringing attention to him. Carrying out his will. Honouring his gospel. So, overflowing generosity. Um, sacrificial generosity. Responsible generosity. The glory of Christ. The way we handle things draws attention to him and reflects him. And as we're talking of the glory of Christ, let me go back to verse 9 and read this verse to stir us and to finish. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Well, we've got a good last hymn in a minute, but I think it would be good to have just a, a minute or so for personal reflections, the pound note, the heart sign, some of these lessons, to turn into a, a personal prayer before the Lord, before we sing. Let's have our last song which carries on the theme of the the grace, the servant-likeness of Jesus and encourages us to follow suit. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory vowed. Shall we stand to sing?
Our Heavenly Father, I suspect we all feel the sense of the challenge of this evening. Um, We wrestle with our own um, selfishness. Uh, We want wisdom. Lord, you know our situations, you know what's wise. You know there is a place for enjoying the good gifts that you give to us, our family, those close to us. We don't want self-denial for the sake of it. But Lord, we, we can so easily be those who are not big-hearted and generous and so easily have um, giving and generosity which is not grace-flavoured but minimal or, or dutiful. We can so easily overlook the Saviour who we depend on and trust in and love and not copy his pattern. We do pray that you would help us to think through these things. Our money is your money. We're just stewards of what you've given to us. Help help us to be wise. Help us to be big-hearted, we pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen.